Good morning. Happy Friday. This is John Hulsman reporting in with our Around the World in 20 Minutes flagship podcast, making sense of the beguiling new world we find ourselves in. And in these sleepy August days, I love them because it's a chance to do what we call big think pieces, uh, to get out of the hurly-burly of the immediate in the 24-hour news cycle where your attention span is often in political risk, like a fruit fly going to whatever's going on now where you look at the immediate but not necessarily the important. August is about the opposite. You get a chance to catch your breath, take a deep breath, look around at the world, and see what matters. And what matters above all else, and we've said this before, is the Indo-Pacific. It's where we spend most of our time now on political risk. When I started 15, 16 years ago, uh, political risk was still pretty much centered on transatlantic relations. And this goes back to what I've said about in Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski's day, all the A students studied transatlantic relations. Even in my day, they did. Now, for our political risk firm, we hire people who speak Mandarin, Farsi, know about the political economy of Southeast Asia, though international relations sphere is now truly international. It is not just about or even primarily about the United States and Europe, because you have to look at the Indo-Pacific and say, this is where all the future economic growth of the world is. So most of the opportunities to come, come from the Indo-Pacific. And at the same time, much of the world's future political risk comes from here because of the Sino-American Cold War, the two superpowers vying for dominance in East Asia, China's backyard, where the United States has long been dominant since the end of World War II. So all the risk, all the reward in the most important region in the world in terms of both risk and reward. And that leads us always to the Indo-Pacific, if we can but see. And that's the people we hire, and that's the work we do. And that's really what we should be focusing on. A lot of the other things we spend our time on are distractions from this fundamental region, and that must be kept in mind as we go. And ignore the doom-mongering that somehow, and the United States always does this, there article after article, if you look back at Time Magazine's archives, in the 1920s, Mussolini was man of the year like seven times. Fascism was the coming thing. For goodness sake, the man drained the Pontine marshes around Rome. Nothing could stop the inexorable rise of fascism. And if you didn't believe that, the next, you know, shibboleth you swallowed was that nothing could stop the rise of Stalin. We always think our enemies are 10 feet tall. And we don't spend a lot of times looking at the problems and mistakes and incompetences that they have focused as we are rightly on our own problems, our own ineptitudes. And that's something we should do, but you have to look at things comparatively. And the interesting thing about the structural world we live in, and as a structural realist, I think this is how the world ought to be looked at. If you understand the structure of the world in terms of power, almost anything can be figured out. And if you don't understand that, almost nothing can be figured out. And we live in a world with two superpowers, the United States and China. But the interesting thing is that both of them are in decline relatively to the rest of the world. And this is a fascinating point. For the longest time, everybody thought China would inexorably rise to surpass the United States. Many, many, many of my competitors have said this along the way. It started with Neil Ferguson in Chimerica, the idea that, that China was rising, America was falling. But this was okay, he thought, 
because they could work something out under globalization and the world would continue. Then came the very talented Graham Allison, who said, amongst other things, China's rising and America's falling. But this is bad news because this will lead to the Thucydides trap. And as one power rises, the other falls. You end up with a war and that this has happened uh, 12 out of the last 16 times in the last 500 years. And Thucydides, of course, was the first real uh, historian of significance who worked in a way that, that we did. Herodotus made a lot up. Thucydides actually followed the facts. And Thucydides made his name writing about the Peloponnesian War, where a dominant Sparta was worried about the rise of Athens. And this led to the self-immolation of both of them in the Peloponnesian War. And Allison really expertly laid out this trap but that's not the trap we're in. My way around that debating is to say that's true and that's a fact of international life, but that's not the world we live in because China is not inexorably rising. And if you accept that, things stack up far better than you would think otherwise. I would argue that the United States and China are both in relative decline relative to much of the emerging world. Think of India, which is rising from a very low base. India is two to three generations away from being a superpower. It's already a great power, but it's rising from a very low base relative to the United States and, and China. But if you assume that China is not inexorably rising, the world looks very different indeed. You end up with the danger being, as I have been arguing for years now, along with people like Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, that the danger is precisely the opposite, that China's peaking that it's achieved this remarkable growth that began under the fascinating Deng Xiaoping in December 1978 when he wrested control of China from the lunacy of the Gang of Four, which followed Mao's lunacy, and led them on to their march toward superpower status in the blink of an eye. All that is absolutely true, but they're peaking now. China is no longer gaining relative to the United States, and there's a legion of reasons to back this up. But lazy analysts who, without looking under the hood, assume the Lamborghini is working when if it's missing spark plugs, it cannot run. And the Chinese Lamborghini is missing a few spark plugs. Here's just a number, but this is the first reason things stack up well for the United States. Don't assume China is inexorably rising. Rather, assume both the United States and China are in relative decline, with China perhaps being in a, a greater trajectory of decline and certainly it's a peaking power. Now, the danger of a peaking power is that like the Kaiser in 1914 worried about the rise of Russia relative to Germany, which was no longer gaining on the British Empire, or like Imperial Japan in the 1930s, Japan had grown at 6% in the 1920s, but only 1% in the 1930s, that you either had to use its magnificent military or lose it. It could no longer be in a position to attack the United States and vie for superpower status. And that's the danger is the next five or six years that as China realizes it can't accomplish its goal of being even the regional great power ahead of the United States, let alone the global superpower for its myriad problems, that it will choose to act over Taiwan while it can. Because after the next six or seven years, I would argue that it's not very likely that it can act at all as it's clear to everyone it is no longer a rising power. So it doesn't mean there aren't dangers. It just means the dangers are different. And we have to get the structural realism part of things right and look at the world as it actually is warts and all. And don't assume that all our enemies are 12 feet tall. But the good news is if we can get beyond this five or six years, 
with an alliance deterrence, with closer economic ties to the Indo-Pacific, with making the quadrilateral initiative real, with strengthening the AUKUS initiative, with continuing to work with our many allies in the region, and China can hesitate and not go forward in an aggressive manner, then after Xi, you can begin to look at China settling for being a superpower, which it will remain. Nobody's saying China's going to fall apart. What I'm saying is that its days of rising effortlessly in the blink of an eye historically from 1978 to now are over, that a new era for China is upon us, and that if we can get through the danger zone of the next five to seven years, you can see actual stability in the region very much on Western and American terms. And again, the first reason for this is that China is no longer rising if people bothered to look. Here's just a couple things that go against China at the moment. One, and perhaps most importantly, it's going to get old before it gets rich. One of the factors of political risk that simply does not change very easily is demography. Even if you have a dramatic turnaround in demography, which almost never happens, it takes 20 years, another generation, and for those people to have children to really move the demographic needle. And perhaps China's single greatest mistake in policy terms in the last 50 years was the one China policy. If you had been going to conferences in the 1970s, they would have been about a topic that people talk far less about now, which is population control, population explosion. There were a series of doom-mongering Malthusian books. Remember, Malthus has never come to pass because productivity has always stayed ahead of demography. But these books would have been population, particularly in the developing world, is going to get out of hand. And that this means that they will never have the prosperity they need to actually do better. And the Chinese took this very seriously. And like many theories that turned out not to be true at the time, it was very faddish, very popular. And the Chinese took this to heart. And as an authoritarian nation, they demanded that families have merely one child. There were all kinds of punishments ranging up to abortion, but more likely putting social pressure, penalties, threatens with jail, if you have more children than that, informing on people, and making it very unpleasant to have more than just one child. There was coercion involved. And dutifully, in the end, the Chinese complied that no longer did they have four or five kids, but they had one as the Chinese government wanted. Now, this is yet another Jeffersonian comment I'm going to make. Any democratic state would know better. Um, of all the things you can't control, matters of the heart and procreation have to be pretty high on the list and be very careful what you wish for, because having succeeded in stopping their population growing exponentially, the Chinese forgot that you actually need people to work to generate the income to pay for the rest of society. And China's failed to do this. Its numbers now, which are famously not accurate, it took the, the most recent demographic people extra, suspiciously extra weeks to come up with their figures, meaning that they're doctored just like the economic ones are. But the number is about 1.45 they have per couple, so in children per couple. So instead of the replacement rate of 2.1, they say they're at 1.45, which is Southern Mediterranean ruinous numbers. The real number is going to be lower. It's probably something like 1.1, 1.2, even worse, breathtakingly worse. Having at last been aware after two generations of ruinous policy, 
that this was destroying their country, that there weren't going to be enough workers moving forward. It's 200 million people in the near term leave the workforce and, and 200 million people are going to retire. That's a gigantic shift. And rather than deal with this point, China fell asleep and then said, oh, gosh, well, OK, you can have two children. Now they're asking people to have three but the number isn't changing. Chinese women, having been empowered by this process, don't want to have five kids, don't want to spend the rest of their lives at home in a village anymore. If you're a working woman and you're living in Shanghai or Beijing, you want to go on with your increasingly pleasant life. And the numbers aren't budging. They're not moving. Having force-fed the Chinese people the lesson of fewer children, they have learned this lesson to the ruinous destruction of China as a whole. So they're going to get old before they get rich. And with these fewer number of people, the days of easy catch-up growth, which proceed when a society moves up the value chain, particularly from very low beginnings. Think India now, which is the only major economy with catch-up growth there, which is why India is such an economic opportunity moving forward. For China, you have this ending. And worse, China doesn't have the advanced safety net of the West somebody's going to have to pay for all these old people and they're not going to be enough workers for that to be the Chinese state. They will get old before they get rich. And this is the single most important factor in China's peaking and one people simply don't talk nearly enough about. It is highly unlikely to change. There seems to be no sign of it changing at all. Even after two generations of the ruinous one China policy, the government can't turn the galleon and make it turn on a dime. And so this is going to stop China from continuing to effortlessly gain relative to the United States. The United States, on the other hand, with 330 million people through legal and illegal immigration, even though the demography numbers are low, when you add in the legal and illegal immigration, something you don't have in Han-dominated China, these numbers make the United States in a far better position, around 2%, 2 to 1.9 to 2, which is almost the replacement rate if you add any legal and legal immigration. So the United States is in much better demographic shape than China. Um, and this has all kinds of obvious consequences for what we're talking about. Second, China's private debt, particularly the real estate market, which makes up 30% of China's GDP. The real number might be higher, but the shadow banking system of which we know almost nothing, it's a black box, I'm not sure the Chinese know much about it, uh, is horribly indebted. And an interesting thing is going on at the moment. There are a series of mortgage strikes because now mortgages are the name of the game. This is new for China in the last three or five, three to five years. This is new. And what you tend to do is start paying a mortgage even before your house is fully built. And a number of major companies, real estate companies in China, Evergrande is just one of about 20, are teetering on the edge of ruin, of collapse. And so people are stopping paying their mortgages. There is a mortgage strike going on throughout the country because people don't want to pay for a house that isn't finished yet and may never be finished. And so showing they have no confidence in the system, a lot of people have stopped paying this mortgage without being paid. These real estate companies obviously do even worse, and a big bailout may be ahead. And so China economically internally, has, and this is 30% of the GDP internally of the country, China has all kinds of problems of indebtedness, particularly private indebtedness. Um, and this is a black box people don't know nearly enough about. And this is also not helping China continue to gain relative to anyone. It has this tremendous unexploded time bomb economically, internally. Uh, the third thing to mention is that Xi Jinping, unlike Deng, 
is not really a free marketeer at heart. Again, in this way, he harkens back to his Maoist tormentor um, being, and Xi as, as a young man spent time because his father was a princeling, was close to Mao, who then turned on him during the Cultural Revolution, and Xi was sent off into the countryside to work and was humiliated and lost his privileged status. And rather than hating Mao, he seems to have had a version of the Stockholm Syndrome and fallen in love with his captor. And Xi is, is unlike Mao, further state-owned enterprises, the really inefficient part of the Chinese economy. And he keeps throwing money at the SOEs, which is the least efficient part, subsidizing them at the expense of the vibrant private sector, thereby adding to government indebtedness, not increasing productivity, and favoring the least productive parts of society at the expense of the most productive parts. In other words, he's a socialist, a real live socialist. God bless him. And this is, of course, hurting the Chinese economy in a fundamentally structural long-term way that also isn't talked about nearly enough. A fourth problem for Xi is that he scared the horses. And we've talked about this before geostrategically. He's managed not American diplomacy, not Bismarckian genius of the United States. If anything, the organizing genius uh, of the anti-Chinese coalition in the Indo-Pacific is the late great Shinzo Abe, who actually the, the, the quadrilateral initiative, which is the main great power initiative uh, pushing against Chinese expansionism in the region, was his brainchild. Um, he kept the free trade movement, the CPTPP, going, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the regional free trade initiative going after the United States for reasons of great self-harm abrogated involvement in that treaty, that Shinzo Abe is the one who kept things together in some sort of coherent intellectual way, and he will be greatly missed. Um, and he's one of the most underrated men of the 21st century in doing so. But China's made Abe's job a lot easier, and that he scared the horses across the board by smacking down on the student movement and, in effect, uh, abrogating the agreement with Britain, the uh, one country, two systems agreement, and moving in and making and, and clamping down on the democracy movement. It's become one country, one system, one communism with Hong Kong. And this, of course, has scared the Taiwanese into not ever wanting to join China for obvious reasons. He's bullied the Australians into a trade war by them having the temerity to mention that China helped spread COVID. Um, through the spread of COVID, through cover-ups, through leaving open international airports while closing down Wuhan at a minimum, in law and order terms, this would be manslaughter, depraved indifference, that China, everyone knows, played a role in propagating the spread of the COVID virus. No one talks about it, but everybody knows this. And this has, of course, made people very distrustful of China, who got the world sick. Um, cracking down in Tibet, cracking down in Xinjiang province, um, with his near genocidal treatment, Xi and, and his leaderships of the Uyghurs, uh, having overflights over Taiwan, claiming eight-ninths of the Ch South China Sea, ignoring the rulings of the Hague Tribunal, which said he didn't own it and going ahead anyway, militarizing man-made islands in the South China Sea, bullying the Japanese in the East China Sea. All these things together have been the opposite of Deng's far more adroit, softly, softly policy and instead, she has scared the horses and united the region against him to the benefit of the United States. Um, again, huge, huge geostrategic errors. Xi has proven to be a very poor leader. And um, we don't see that. We just say he's 12 feet tall. He's actually been a disaster compared to Deng and his predecessors um, for China. 
um, uh, because the people who came between Deng and Xi broadly followed, although with less flair in Deng's footsteps. Xi has gone back to the ruinous Maoist-style centralized um, system, and he's united the entire region against him. India, closer to the United States than it's ever been. Japan, longtime ally, couldn't be closer to the United States. Vietnam, for goodness sake, longtime enemy, couldn't be closer to the United States. Australia signs a defense treaty with other Anglosphere member of the UK and the United States. ASEAN, moving to a position of real neutrality. The Philippines, moving from under Duterte, flirting with a pro-China position, now has a pro-American position. All across the board, you can see the countries of the region coming together. And again, critically in both AUKUS and old-fashioned defense pact with Australia, the UK, and the US, sharing nuclear submarine technology and giving the United States Australia as an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. And this is a fantastic development strategically for America, brought about by Chinese bullying. And then, of course, the quadrilateral initiative, which has great powers, Japan and India, superpower America, and Anglosphere member Australia, all together in an alliance. Exactly who you'd want to be countering China's dominance all together, and there mainly because Xi has scared the horses. So geostrategically, Xi has been a bust. The two generations worth of demography on China, where it gets old before it gets richer, a bust. Huge problems internally with both economically the state-owned enterprises that Xi is favoring over the more, far more efficient private sector and the private indebtedness, particularly the real estate companies tendency to go bust in the near term, mean China simply isn't rising. So if China isn't rising and geostrategically, we have most of the other powers of the region tilting toward the United States with India within the region tilting toward the United States, even if neutral more globally, and Japan firmly in the American camp, along with Anglosphere, Australia, we have a chessboard that lines up beautifully for the United States. Now, there is a but to this. And in fact, there are two ifs to this scenario. One, a lot of this happened, as I've mentioned, because the United States got lucky because it's simply been the beneficiary of mistakes that the Chinese have made. And this is part of life and international relations. There's nothing wrong with that. But given the importance of the regime, we need a plan to knit ourselves together more in a more diplomatic manner to deter China peacefully to allow for China to be a great power, but over time cool things down, leave things as they are in the Indo-Pacific, which will ultimately benefit the United States. Um, by the way, that's a further issue, is that Taiwan and, and the configuration geostrategically bottles up China, as we've talked about within the first island chain. If things stay as they are, the United States is the dominant power. China has to change the status quo. It's always an advantage to being the status quo in this way, and America is as the dominant power in both East Asia and the Indo-Pacific. China has to dramatically change something or America remains dominant. The other big if to this is economic, that the United States, in abrogating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is now the CPTPP, um, does not have st as strong economic ties to this booming region as it should. And this is bad both in macroeconomic terms and especially geopolitical geostrategic terms. Macroeconomically, this is the part of the world that's growing. We want to have as many trade deals with this part of the world as possible because it benefits American workers. That's the whole point. I buy the Trump argument that we should judge 
free trade deals on their merits, that it's not a religion, that they don't always favor American workers. But this region booming, having closer to economic ties with it, does overall favor American workers. And that case needs to be made. And the United States at the moment ruinously has two protectionist parties. The Republican and Democratic parties are both more protectionist today than they've been at any other time. Um, in memory, certainly in the last century. And although people talk about Trump in this, it's just as true uh, for the Democrats, if not more so. And no one comments on this ruinous fact. And then the second part is the geostrategic part. Abe knitted this group together because it then sets the trade and economic norms for the region, excluding China. The rest of the region makes the trading rules that will bind China to it, but on our terms. We make the rules. And foregoing this means that all the countries in the region have closer economic ties, far closer trading ties to China than they do to the U.S. So the whole region is geared toward China geoeconomically and is geared toward the United States geostrategically. To quote the great Johnny Mercer, something's got to give. It cannot remain the region cannot remain indebted to the Chinese economically and indebted to the Americans strategically. It will move one way or the other. And given the favorable terms of the chessboard at the moment, the United States must make it a priority to do far more economically with the region than it has up to now. This is the one chink in an overall in the armor which makes the United States be in such a favorable position in the region. So there's a lot that still needs to be done. But ignore the doom mongers. Things stack up well for the U.S. on the Indo-Pacific chessboard. There's good news out there in political risk and opportunities out there if we have the courage to see the world as it actually is. Thank you very much. I enjoy doing this. I love these doing without notes in the morning. I haven't even had my espresso yet. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it and have a great weekend. Please do subscribe. So many of you have. Please do subscribe uh, to John's newsletter. We give you the best political risk coverage in the world and hope to do it wittily and with a smile uh, that makes your day better. So I hope you enjoy this. Please do subscribe. And those of you who haven't, please do give the $70 a year that we're asking so that we can keep giving you our little local newspaper to the world, which really, if you look at the follies of the mainstream media, it's hard to beat. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. And now it's off to my espresso and feeding the five cats. Take care.